1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her, go subscribe.
1: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Sandra Butler. Sandra is the author of several books, each designed to identify something unspoken and move those issues into public conversation. Over the past three decades, Butler has written uh, dozens of articles, reviews, and essays that have appeared in a range of periodicals and anthologies. She has facilitated workshops for community activists, social workers, and psychologists on violence against women, and has lectured on women's issues nationally and internationally. Her latest book is entitled The Kitchen is Closed and Other Benefits of Being Old. Here today to talk about that and so much more is Sandra Butler. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Sandra.
2: Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here.
0: I have to say, that is something my mother used to say all the time. The kitchen is closed uh-huh. when she didn't want us eating anymore.
2: That's exactly right. It's been clean for the last time today. The counters have been wiped down for the last time today.
0: That's yep. right. So I have to uh, begin by asking <laughs> you the question I ask everybody who uh, sits across from me, virtually, of course, because we're not a person. But, uh, Sandra, tell me, where does your story begin?
2: Well, it's a long answer because it began in the 1970s. When I had emerged from a marriage with two children and the beginnings of feminism. And as I became involved in my activism, my feminist activism, one of the earliest priorities we had was violence against women. And I wrote a book in 1978 called Conspiracy of Silence the Trauma of Incest. And it was designed essentially to say, this is real, this is true, this is happening, we need to believe women when they tell us this. And it may be difficult for your listeners now to understand how groundbreaking that was because incest didn't happen unless it was, as anthropologists said, because we were so puritanical, we had bad attitudes about sex or as a lot of psychologists were saying, which is that the, there was bad communication in the family, or there was alcoholism, or the mother was not protective. All of the excuses from the, what turned out to be a tidal wave of abuses against little girls and women's bodies that was just starting to come to the surface. And I worked as a psychologist and an activist in those years, which was my 30s, and wrote a book designed to bring it to public attention. And that became the writing that I did for the next 40 years. All of my writing was designed to bring to public attention that which people were not aware of. The second book was about the death of my partner from breast cancer. But the intention was to make the death public,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: what it means to accompany a beloved to their death. And again, this was 1988. There was very little information about being fully present in the dying process. Now my daughter is actually a death doula and it has become an entire part of our culture and how we have begun to think about dying. But in those days, that was not the case. And then five years ago, I wrote a book with a very old friend uh, with whom I've been in a woman's group for 33 years, which started actually a step aside from this part of the story to another. On my 50th birthday, when my partner with whom I wrote Cancer in Two Voices died, my friends insisted on taking me out to dinner, even though it was a very melancholy time for me. And over dinner, We were probably a little bit wine-soaked, as we often were in our 50s, and somebody made a joke about both Farley Granger and Stuart Granger, and everybody at the table knew who they were, which for women in their 50s rarely happens because our references are completely unknown to 20-somethings and 30-somethings. So we got very excited and said, we need a group of women our age to talk about what it is to be our age. And many of us were just starting to go through menopause then. So we started a group called the Wandering Menstruals. (laughs) And we met the first Saturday of the month. And we have been going on the first Saturday of the month for 33 years. Our numbers have dwindled, of course, but we're still meeting. So one of the women from that group and I wrote a book five years ago. We both had middle-aged daughters and we had had many conversations about the way mothering morphs when your kids are 60, you're still mothering them. You still have the same maternal feelings. But what's happened is the autonomy has shifted. We're becoming more in need of them because we have more time, we're retired. We wanna see them and visit with them. And they're in the middle of very complicated lives. They're raising their own family. They have less and less time for us. And the whole dynamic of the mother-daughter relationship really changes. And it turned out, we interviewed about 80 women. It turned out to be a more melancholy book than I had expected it would because the women were wanting, their daughters in their lives more than their daughters needed their mothers in their lives. And it reminded me of my own relationship with my mother. When I was in my fifties, I called her every week regularly. I loved her. Our relationship was fine, bumpy in the ways that mother daughter relationships are, but basically it was a loving relationship. But when I would call her on Sunday, what I wanted to know was, was she okay? Was she eating well? Was she exercising? Was she sleeping okay? Did she see the doctor? And as soon as I knew she was okay, as far as I was concerned, I was finished with the conversation. Yeah. And it never occurred to me to say, what are you reading? What are you thinking? What are you dreaming? all the things that I want my daughters to know enough to ask me. But of course they don't because they're not there yet. So that all led to this book, which is that all of the writing that I've done has been in my voice, but to bring attention to conversations that I felt were necessary and important. This book is about me, in my voice and my experience and it's in a very different tone it's very much more playful and very much lighter but it comes from the same genesis which is who tells our stories if we don't tell our own stories they're not going to be told correctly so i'm not a senior i'm not older I'm not over any hills, I'm not mature, I don't want to be plucky. I'm an old woman with stories to tell about being old. I suspect some of them will easily extrapolate to other old women and they'll recognize themselves, but, and that would be wonderful, but really what I'm hoping as an old political activist is that old women will use my book as a way to embolden themselves to tell their stories mm-hmm. and not have them told for them.
0: Yeah. Well, why, why right now? I mean, why did you decide to write this book right now?
2: Well, two reasons. The first one started very unexpectedly when I was 70. I'm 84 now. When I was 70, I went on a dating site. My friends were all encouraging me. And I Went on a dating site and I had that experience, which I think is the one of the I don't know where's the table of contents. Yeah, it's the first piece in the book. But I wrote it in a voice that was different than anything I had ever written. It was very buoyant and it was very light and it was very witty. And not that I didn't know I was those things, I just had never written in that way. And I wrote it and it was published and people just were surprised and delighted that I had written in that way. And then it was dormant for a while while I wrote the book with my friend about mother and middle-aged daughters. And when the pandemic started, there I was in my house, an old woman with no place to go and nothing to do. And I thought, well, let me see if I can write some more of this. So it was kind of like my pandemic project. Some of it started before I took a trip to France the summer before the pandemic, mercifully. And I had been fooling around on a home exchange site and found a gorgeous four-bedroom stone farmhouse in the south of France owned by two people who wanted to come to my little apartment in California. And I grabbed it. I invited three friends to join me. And as it turned out at the last minute, none of them could. So I spent a month alone in the South of France in a great big stone farmhouse with very minimal French alone. And it was quite a revealing and full of curiosities kind of experience. So I wrote that piece, but most of the pieces came during the pandemic where I just thought, what the hell? I mean, if I don't tell what it is to be me, it's never gonna get said. So let me just try to do that. So I wrote more and more pieces during the pandemic, during which time my daughter's father, from whom I've been divorced 50 years, a lovely man was dying. And it in an odd way brought my two daughters and he and I back together in a way that kids always dream when there's a divorce to be able to bring mommy and daddy back together. So I spent more time with him and the four of us spent more time together. And that led me to thinking about the end of my life and his and choices. And I wrote some pieces about that. So it's been, a gift to me to write all of this. And so far the response is a resounding yes, primarily by old women,
0: Mm.
2: younger, younger women and men have questions. What was it like? How did it feel? Why did you do this or that? But the old women, it's like, I understand your mother. How many times can you wipe down the counter at the end of the day before the day is over and you can sit down and not have to see more mess on the counter. So like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What I'm curious about is I know we jumped in, you kind of picked up your story in the 1970s. And um, uh-huh. you know, as you mentioned, you're, you are 84 years old. What, what was the, you know, is there a pre post there in terms of like before the seventies, after the seventies, or maybe before the late sixties, after the late sixties, you know, was your life much different. I know you mentioned you were married, you had two daughters. Uh-huh. Um, and then you've gotten divorced, but what was, the, what was the before to that story?
2: Okay, the before. My before began in a very conventional way. Nuclear family trained to create another nuclear family, get a good education so that I can marry an up and coming professional. Be smart, but not too smart. All of the, the training manual of middle-class white girls in the 1950s. Uh, I was very conventional in all those ways. And I married, luckily, because I didn't know what I was doing, I married a lovely man, but a conventional man who wanted a conventional marriage. And I did my very, and I was young, and I did my very best to create a conventional marriage until the 60s crashed into my life. And there was this exhilarating world happening just outside my suburban home. And I wanted to be there. I didn't want to be. Entertaining friends and doing all of the requisite things one does. And it wasn't that I was unhappy. It wasn't that our marriage wasn't perfectly reasonable. It was that I was young and the world was exploding and I wanted to be in it. Yeah. So I left, the girls and I moved to New York right in the middle of Greenwich Village where everything I thought at 25 was where it was at. That was my best idea of where it was at. And I became involved in, first it was the tail end of what was called the old left, and then it was replaced with the new left. But all of it was essentially civil rights and Vietnam activism led by very charismatic men. Mm -hmm. And we did the mimeographing, if anyone even knows what mimeographing is anymore. We did the mimeographing. We made the casseroles, a lot of brown rice casseroles for after the meeting was over, which was what the men were doing in the other room deciding. And so when the very first glimpse, and I was very active, and I believed, and I marched, and I picketed, and so forth. But in the very first glimpses of feminism, where I had never noticed in 26 years that I was not in my own politics, I I hadn't even noticed. It was so the way of the world that men Mm -hmm. were leaders and women mimeographed. At the very earliest glimpse of feminism, I thought, oh, of course. I get to have a voice, I get to have a point of view, which is more than agreeing or disagreeing. And that moved me into a kind of confidence, into a kind of voice, into a kind of activism that came from what is my life as a woman, as a mother, as a woman, as a daughter. And, and also I was heterosexual in those days. And as a woman who wants to relate to men, with men, differently so that that was that went on for a while until I met this woman who was a professor at Stanford dry funny witty playful in all the ways that I was serious and earnest she was just the perfect balance for me my kids like to say she taught me how to play which was (laughs) never anything I was good at till I met her and I fell in, madly in love with her. And thankfully she returned the favor. And so we were partners until, I was still doing the violence against women, we were traveling a lot. And she was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer and the doctor said she would have the most three years. And it was clear to me that if it was gonna be a time limited thing like that, I wanted to spend that time with her. So I left the Violence Against Women work, and she and I spent three years together. We wrote the book during that time as our acknowledgement of the privilege that we had to spend that time together because most people who have a dying beloved still have to go to work and still have to do the everyday tasks, and I could just, we could be together. So that book was an offering from us to other people going through that experience. So that's my before.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, like when you were going into that marriage, you know, that was, you know, meant to be very conventional. Did you have, was there like a little voice inside you saying, you know, uh, Sandra, this really isn't for you. Did you have any, any kind of, any kind of inner voice saying, hey, I'm pretending at this point or, or did you not really know?
2: I think that what I would say The short answer is I didn't know. The longer answer, Mike, is that conventionally raised women in the 1950s didn't have an inner voice. There wasn't Mm -hmm. an inner voice. The very, very, since this is a book about authors, the very first glimpse, I can't remember what exactly it was, but the very first glimpse I had of a girl having an inner voice was when I read Marjorie Morningstar. I don't know if you know that book, yeah, I but don't. it was, it was, you know, long ago, but it was a girl saying, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to make my way in the world and I'm going to be an artist. And I remember reading and thinking, what? I mean, the only girls who lived alone in my frame of reference were girls who were up to no good, <laughs> who wore charm bracelets around their ankles. I mean, you know, racy girls, I, you know, probably there was some longing I had to be racy, but I think I wouldn't have known how to be racy then, yeah. or brave, or brave.
0: Yeah, I mean, just thinking that uh, you you leaving your husband during that period of time, uh huh, that's a brave decision. You have two young ones, you know, you move to New York. How did you deal with the fear or the potential repercussions of that action?
2: Well, I think I tried to pretend that he wasn't as hurt as he was and the kids weren't as bewildered as they were. I think that's probably the truth. The blessing of that time was that he was, he just died a few months ago at 99. He was a good and decent and kind human being. So the fact that I wounded him as I did because he didn't understand my dreams or my longings because he didn't have them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the happy ending for him is he found a perfect wife and had a 40 year marriage of the kind that worked for him. But I just couldn't let myself know. I felt like I was fighting for myself and there were wounds and losses that resulted from that. And both my daughters can say that now you know, that it was really scary. And it's like, you know, any kid whose parents get divorced understand that moment. It's like the ground shifts. Nothing is solid anymore. Nothing can be trusted because mommy and daddy are not the ground anymore. So, you know, definitely a price was paid and my kids paid it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: But, uh, you know, I wonder... You know, at the end of the day, you've done them a a huge service and yourself a huge service, because had you stayed in a relationship that wasn't fulfilling you, who knows the repercussions that has probably would have been much worse.
2: Absolutely. And let me expand on what you said, Mike. One daughter was a successful professor of economics at a university and decided it just didn't fit for her. And she left and became a death doula. And she attributes my, the way I live as the source of her being able to take that giant step out of status, respectability, into something that's seen in the larger world as a little bit more marginal and a little less statusy. The other daughter, also because of, they say, because of how I've lived my life decided she was gonna be an artist, which scared me because I didn't have money and I was afraid she'd never make a living. And But I kept that to myself and she became an artist and she's now teaching because she's an old artist. She was a dancer, a choreographer. So both of the girls, one immediately and the other after a 20 year hiatus, went for their biggest dreams and have lived their lives that way as have I. Yeah. That's not to say that in their developmental early period, there were not wounds, but the end result is very exuberant lives, all three yeah. of us.
0: Yeah, yeah it sound, sounds like it. Yeah. You know, I was being coached by someone recently who told me, you know, Mike, just because you love somebody doesn't mean they're the right person for you. Which I thought was kind of a profound statement. You know, it, it kind of hit me. You know, it's it's, it's one of those like the obvious is not always apparent statement.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. That one just kind of hit me and it stayed with me for a long time.
2: Well, you know, it's a deceptively simple thing. I mean, often these simple statements, you know, are very subtle and complex. And here's how I would answer it as an old woman. When I go to weddings now and I look of young people. And I listen to them make promises that they have no idea what they're promising. They have no idea what they're saying. I promise I will love you and I will support you and I will forever and ever and ever. And it's like, you have to build a life after the romance burns off. You build a life out of the dailiness, out of, out of the kindness, out of the patience, out of the attention, out of the, the care It's not about romance, it's about every morning you wake up and you choose to love this person with as much wisdom as you have, knowing who that person is and loving them as they are. That takes such a long time to learn and it's got nothing to do with the promises that people make. And I don't know if you've ever interviewed anybody who wrote this book, I keep wanting to find this book and I've never seen it, but it would be an anthology of marriages over 40 years. And what did they learn about what it actually means to love over time? What is forgivable? What is not forgivable? What parts of yourself do you need to put aside? What parts do you struggle to hold on to? Loving is a very, very demanding part of a full life. And it takes a lot of intelligence.
0: Well, first of all, when he said, "I, you know, have you ever interviewed the the writer of this book?" I'm glad you didn't say the Bible because I don't think I could do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that would be an awesome book to read, wouldn't um, it? To yeah, to be honest with you, I, I really do. And I I would imagine that the things that are easy to forgive and the things that are hard to forgive, if we put a list in, the two two of those those two lists together, I think uh-huh. we'd be really surprised about what we'd read in there.
2: I um, bet you're right. I bet you're right. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, yep. I mean, maybe that'll be my first piece of nonfiction. We'll be writing. Oh, that, wouldn't be that great? Have be great? And I'll have to give you, I'll have to give you partial credit for it. So, I,
2: that sounds great. You know, that just, sounds great. Just
0: wait for those royalties to come in. You know? <laughs> <They'll>... <laughs> Any day but you now. know, the
2: thing is, my writing books like that, where people can actually see themselves affirmed on the page, is such a gift. Yeah. It's such a gift. Well, it yeah. seems
0: like that, that's a lot of how you've really focused your writing career. Um, yep. kind of telling yep. stories that no one else has told, but that people can, you know, really relate to. Yep. And finding those, those lines, those, those conversations that need to be had, but no one's been, you know, they're, they're unspoken, no one's been having them.
2: Right. Or, the, I mean, the, those are the serious ones, like when I move to Phoenix, where I'm moving away from next week. To, well, it's very stand, hot there this I'm time moving- of year. Oh, that's an understatement. Yes, but I'm moving to Tucson. But when I moved here, I did—I had been in my home for 22 years and I had to do major culling. And the question when you move and you're culling like that is, what matters? What matters? What do I want around me? What physical representations of my life matter? and what has served its purpose and can be passed forward. It's a very demanding psychological process, was for me. I wrote, it's one of the pieces in the book, is how I made my way through the what matters questions and what I gave away and what I donated and what I sold and and why and so forth. And then I got down to the very bottom, which is, well, what about my journals? Do I actually want my daughters to read my journals? No, I do not want my daughters to read my journals, but I can't discard my journals. That would be like the end of my life. This, these have a company. So I wrote a whole piece about what about my journals? And I've gotten a lot of response from women who say, yeah, I know me too, I don't know what to do with, Letters from old lovers that the husband never knew about. I think they, they don't want the kids to know about. Everybody has their little secret stash of stuff. What do you do with that secret stash of stuff when you're old? So that's, that's one of the pieces that I wrote that I try to parse out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that should pique somebody's curiosity out there listening to this conversation. Certainly has piqued so. my curiosity.
2: Yeah. 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 Um,
0: Yeah, I've never thought about that. I mean, because so much of what I write is I just, I put everything out there. Uh Um, And I probably shouldn't. There are some things, I should have some boundaries in life, but. I think,
2: I would say it differently, Mike. I think questioning the importance of our secrets is a much wiser place to start. What are the things we think we need to keep secret and why? Who is being protected with those secrets? I mean, I learned that, way back in the 70s when I was doing incest work, you know, and that was pretty obvious, you know, the protection impulse to keep the family together. But now just everyday secrets, well, we didn't want to, wouldn't want to hurt their feelings or we never told them before and now it's too late or secrets are burdensome. And I don't mean to disagree with you that we don't need to have some boundaries, but I think we all are weighted down by way too many secrets that don't need to be secret at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. there is a, a, an emotional toll to pay.
2: You're right. Absolutely. With, with that. You know? Absolutely.
0: And it's funny, like, once, um, oftentimes I find when a secret I've been holding is just becomes out in the open, like there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a certain amount of weightlessness you feel. You,
2: absolutely. Once it's right. out
0: there, you know?
2: Absolutely. The world didn't end.
0: No, it didn't. I mean, there again, there's repercussions to that, but you do feel and some of the things like I remember one time I was afraid to tell my father that I sold a car and bought a new one because he's very critical. He's about to turn 90, but he's very critical about like the way they, you know, his kids handle money. Uh Um, And so like (laughs) I told him, like, he's like, you still have that car? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And and I would lie to him about it. Mm -hmm. And then and then one day. I just came out and said, my dad, I sold that car two years ago and I bought a new one. He's like, why didn't you just tell me? And I'm like, "Ah, I just felt bad about it. And this is a very minor example. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, there are bigger ones, which I will not share with the audience. But um, but it's stuff like that, you know, and then I just felt better.
2: Here's the thing. This is what my kids do when they have to do that with me. They add a sentence, which to me is the important sentence. I don't know your dad, and I'm not a particularly critical person. My mother was critical. I'm not very critical. But this, the extra sentence is, I didn't tell you because I anticipated criticism. And once that sentence gets added, then the other person may understand some behaviors that need to be changed so they can have more open contact with their kid so when my kids did that with me it always surprised me because of course i have no idea i'm doing annoying and irritating things because they don't they don't seem annoying and irritating to me they seem regular but then my kids will say i know mom but every time i tell you x you always respond with y and i'll say i do well then i'll catch that and i won't do it anymore
0: right
2: so it's a movable thing. If you can get it, They're not with all parents, of course, but it's a movable. Well, let me say it differently. It's a movable thing with parents. I don't do it with my kids. I leave, I leave them as they are. Mm-hmm. The only thing I did with my kids that I said to my kids is if I'm starting to tell a story I've told before, which I feel self-conscious about, because it's such a cliche of being an old person, Yeah, you need to find a very gentle way of letting me know that I don't want you to have to sit through the story, but I don't want you to be impatient and dismissive because I'll feel embarrassed. Right. So I did ask for that one thing and they're good. You know, they're good about it.
0: So is there a safe word or something? I mean, what did the... What well,
2: that's... Like? Now you're going all the way <laughs> into another neighborhood. That was a whole other time in my life. No, it isn't a safe word. It's There's a way they say the word mom that I know what's coming. So, so, So for example, if they're being bossy and wanting to make sure I'm wearing sunscreen or drinking enough water or stuff like that, the mom is like, mom, you know, like that. When I... If I'm starting to tell a story I've told before, it's like, "Uh, mom, and then I know they're stumbling around trying to say something kind to me. So, I mean, I know them for 64 years. I know every cadence in their voice. But I leave their idiosyncrasies as they are because that doesn't feel important. Mm -hmm. I see them fully as who they are. What I need is for them to see me fully in other words, not just as their mom, but as a woman with dreams and mistakes and failures and hopes and ambitions and everything. I want to be full. And that's, I do ask that of them.
0: Yeah. And because
2: their lives are full, they can rise to the occasion.
0: Yeah. Right. I, I have three kids. We have uh, three 20-year-olds. So uh-huh. have triplets.
2: Wow. And
0: yes. Yes, indeed. Wow. But uh I mean, sometimes now they're, they're adults now, I mean, young adults, but adults. And sometimes Barely. I have to remind them, I say, you know, like when I do something that upsets them, uh-huh. or if I say something, you know, that I know is, and I don't do this often, but I can be somewhat antagonistic sometimes if I'm in a mood, I remind them, I'm, like, I'm as human as you are, you know, just, just remember that, like, I am a right. human being, just like you are.
2: Right. Um,
0: and, I, you know, if, and if, if an apology is warranted for me, I will always offer it. But sure. But I I do think, you know, our our kids do have to to remember that we're not like these perfect people as much as, you know, I'd like to think. I I know I'm far from it. Well,
2: but here's, here's what I would say about that. From an old perspective, you have every right to start teaching them that they're just at the age where you are no longer idealized and you're becoming human, but What you will find if your kids have kids is once they begin to parent, their view of parenting and you is going to open and deepen and soften dramatically, Mm -hmm. dramatically because they have no idea. They have no idea what it is to be a parent until you become a parent. And then as their kids go through adolescence which is a pain in the ass always in some way or another and then the 20s where they're finding their way in the world and then as they're parenting through the stages they've been through and you took them through the relationship just deepens and deepens and deepens because they can hold your fullness in a way that they're just at the very beginning of learning now
0: yeah well, that's a beautiful sentiment. And we've gotten really deep here on a corking story today. We've gotten very deep. So I know we've talked a, a bit about the book. We've talked about your life, kind of before and after big decisions were made, 60s feminism. Let's lighten it up a little bit. Okay. One of the ways in which I, I always like to get to know my guests is through pop culture. So I'd be curious, Sandra, what are some of your favorite TV shows? Either present or, or even going back as far back as you'd like. I'd love to know that.
2: TV shows. Probably my TV shows echo my life. So Borgen would be my all-time, all-time favorite. The, you know, stories about people in relationship to power, either playful and comedic or serious. But it's an interesting, larger question, Mike, the idea of popular culture and what it, Feels like through the eyes of an old woman. And there is actually, I'm, I'm looking here to see what the name, oh, Keeping Up. I wrote a piece in this book called Keeping Up. And so one of the examples I can give you is I'm a very, very big jazz fan. I have been since I was 10 years old and I know a lot about jazz and I've been following it its, and its players for decades. And I also am a big fan of what they call secondary show tunes, like the sophisticated cabaret kind of music. And the thing about the music that I've loved and followed and know a lot about is that the lyrics are lyrical. They tell a story of pain, of suffering, of loss, you know, in the wee small hours of the morning and stuff like that. And now when I listen to even the artists who I politically respect like Kendrick Lamar or Common or Beyonce, I have no idea what they're saying. The words come so fast that by the time I get what they're they're three lines beyond. So I actually, the lyrics have fallen away from me and my... And the visuals, which is what popular culture now has enhanced so much because of technology, the visuals have sort of replaced the lyrics. And so you could say I'm an old member of the Beehive. I definitely would say that. But And I know that her politics are very consonant with my politics, but I don't exactly... Know what she's saying when she sings. Lizzo is another one. I think she's spectacular. I think she's bringing a consciousness to people about big, healthy bodies that is so overdue for so many fat girls that have suffered being fat girls for so long. I love that she's doing it. And I will go on YouTube to listen to one of her things. I have no idea. Except The dancing's great and the costumes are great, but so that's kind of how I'm, I have come from the beauty of the subtlety of a Cold Porter lyric to how I'm enjoying the political popular culture of now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I believe we all have inner children inside us um, Mm -hmm. and uh, mine is named Eddie in case you were wondering, but. In what ways, if any, do you feed your inner child?
2: My inner child, well, so I'll reference a piece in this book called, called Confessions of an Autodidact. And I was thrown out of college in 1955 for consorting with, his, with undesirable elements. Yes.
0: That sounds and, like a serious charge. What was that um, all about?
2: Well, I was trying to find the political people at the University of Michigan who were what was called then Negroes, and the dean of women thought it was completely untoward for a middle class white girl to be doing that, and I got expelled. I didn't get back to college until I was divorced and a working mother. My kids were teenagers, and I got back to college, and I discovered for the first time in my 30s, that I was smart. I knew I could get behind a a bullhorn on a flatbed truck. I knew I knew how to do that. But I didn't know I knew how to think until I was actually in an environment where they were teaching me how to think. And so I made one of the most said one of the most expensive sentences of my life to my daughters who were then 16 and 14. I said, I'm just getting my BA, I'm on a roll, I need to keep going, I need to get my MA, I need to go first, but I promise that whatever graduate study you want, I'll pay for it. (laughs) Which was a very expensive sentence, but I went and I got my MA and it was in a school that it was Goddard. And there were, there's a handful of those schools in the 70s and 80s where it's for working adults, which I was. And you do it through correspondence. And then there's three yearly meetings with your advisors. It's, it's a more alternative form of education, which was for me very rigorous, but alternative. What that meant was some of the basic stuff that everybody in the world, I always thought, knew I didn't know. So this goes back to the inner child. I don't know how to do a footnote. I have no idea how to do a footnote. I don't know how to do medical research. There's a whole bunch of stuff. My semicolons and colons are out of the question. I never learned like the basic stuff because I was learning what I was choosing to learn. And so when I'm in the world or when I was more in the public world in the eighties, seventies, eighties and nineties, and I would be on a panel and some expert would say something that had to do with a chart that she would put up with statistics and ends. And I had no idea what she was talking about, but I was on the panel. I was up on the stage with her and I had to keep my face arranged in such a way that it didn't look like I was feeling, what is she talking about? And oh my God, what if there's a question from the audience about it for me, you know? So there is that place in me. I don't know that I'd call it a child, but, and it isn't that it's that counterfeit. It isn't counterfeit. It's just wanting to pretend that I know stuff I don't know I don't know why exactly. I don't know why exactly, but where that started to shift in me was in the 80s. I went to, with Barbara as she was dying, a talk by Stephen Levine, who was a very well-known public speaker about death and dying. And uh, there were maybe 2,000 people there. It was a Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. The place was jammed, and there he was. And speaking about death and dying, Barbara and I were there to learn. And then in the audience, somebody asked him a question. And there was a long pause. And he said, you know, I don't know. And I thought, what? There's 2,000 people in front of him. How do you say, I don't know? You say something. Well, perhaps this or perhaps that. You fump around with... He didn't. He just said he didn't know. And that was the beginning of freeing me from this uncertainty that I had that I needed to know more than I actually knew, which was plenty. So there's a whole there's a whole piece about being an autodidact and the vulnerability of being one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: you've written a lot. Number of books, articles, essays, et cetera. Yeah. Um, How do you feel when you're, you know, looking at or staring at a blank sheet of paper? You're, you need to write something. What, what emotions do you experience?
2: Well, I'll give you a Jewish answer. It depends. (laughs) It depends. If I'm writing something that is fueled by content, then I want to get the content right, and it's about craft. There's no feeling involved. It's like, how do? If I'm given 750 words to write about a piece of content that needs to get communicated about somebody's life or health or political something or other, then that's about craft. And I'll outline it in full with it and it's work. If I'm writing personally with no, no contents, just personally, I need to wait for a first sentence. And if I get a first sentence, sometimes I get a lot of them in the shower. I don't know why that is if I get a first sentence, then I can come and I can just go from the sentence. But sometimes weeks will go by and I'll sit and look at the screen, it's not a paper anymore, it's a screen, but, and if I don't have that starting place, I write a whole bunch of deletable stuff. So it it depends on what I'm writing. Okay, Yeah.
0: Yeah. fair enough. Have there been any lessons about publishing that you feel like you learned the hard way?
2: No, actually, you know, that's interesting. When Conspiracy of Silence was published, it was 1978, and two organizations in San Francisco, progressive, one was the Progressive Glide Church in San Francisco, when they understood I was, because I was well-known in that little part of the world in the Bay Area, and when they found out I was writing a book about incest, they wanted to support it. So they gave me $2,000, which was unbelievable. And so that I could travel and interview and so forth. And the arm of Glide Church, which I think was called New Glide Publications, published it. The second book was when feminist publishing was already pretty well established. There were maybe eight or 10 feminist publishing companies at that point. And so one of the feminist presses did Conspiracy of Silence, and that was a very good experience. There is a press called She Writes Press, which I can't recommend highly enough. Yeah. It's a hybrid press with fabulous feminist principles, and they published the third book. This last book was also a wonderful experience, but it was different. This is Girl Friday, also a feminist press. But this one I decided to self-publish. and The reason that I did was because of COVID, All she writes and several other publishers have like a year or a year and a half backup of manuscripts. And at 84, a year or a year and a half matters. And Girl Friday said, we can turn it around for you in eight months. And I said, let's do it. So all four of my experiences were very, very positive, but I did not go the conventional route of agents and proposals. And I didn't do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're yeah. certainly ahead of your time with that. That's, yeah. that's for sure. And th- that business is changing so much. So um, fast. yep. It's so fast. It's almost, you know, and I've t- talked to a wide range of, of authors. I talk to people who publish independently and I talk to people who go the very traditional get an agent route. There's no wrong way to do it. Oh no, you do the, the you go with the the way that works for you. But what I'd be concerned about if I were the big publishing companies is just how much competition there is. Yes. And quality quality yes. competition coming from the hybrid and independent publishers.
2: Absolutely, but you know what, Mike, that goes back to the very first thing that I said. Who gets to tell our stories? Yeah. And the smaller publishing companies are publishing people of color, and people whose stories have not been told from multiple perspectives. And the big houses are not doing that. Or if they are, they're plucking one per category and giving them a whole big press budget. But all of the other stories are not part of that. the big New York world. And it's a great service to be able to read and learn these stories from some of these smaller Presses and I appreciate them, and I know what a financial struggle it is to be one of them. But they do a tremendous service for us.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. So to wrap up, if you could whisper into your younger selves here, what words of advice would you give? You know, a, a younger Sandra Butler. What would you? What would you tell your younger? Well,
2: self? you have to tell me how what age is younger, Mike.
0: I'll give you two ages. How's that? Okay. I'll give you the. Um, The uh, teenager slash young adult who got kicked out of Michigan. Okay. And then eh, maybe that uh, 30-ish year old person who was embarking on a new life after being married with two kids.
2: Okay. Well, the first one, when I was thrown out of the University of Michigan, I went home, my tail between my legs, as it were. And 40 years later, someone said to me, why did you go home? And it was a stunning question because it had not occurred to me to do anything but internalize my failure, marry the first guy who asked me and settle into a conventional life. And so what would I say to her? You can be braver than this. You don't have to go home. You can find another way forward. That's what I'd say to her. I have to... I have to pause
0: for a second because, you know, when I asked you before, if you had a little voice in your head, you know, Mm -hmm. saying, you know, you may not want this conventional life. You mentioned, hey, I didn't really have a little voice in my head. Women didn't do that in the 50s or have that. But then I'm thinking about the reason why you got kicked out of Michigan. You were doing something unconventional for certainly white women at the time.
2: Yes. Well, that that is its own other story, which is my grandfather taught me many of the most important lessons of my life, but one of them is that your job is to leave the world better than you found it. And so as conventional as my parents were, his voice was probably one of the important lessons. And he didn't teach me political analysis. It was much more old school, like never trust a boss. They're not looking out for the workers. They're only looking out for themselves. It was that kind of political education. And because of the combination of his voice and my love of jazz and my knowledge of jazz, which was very unusual for a white girl at that time, both conspired to lead me into a circle of progressive Negro Detroit people. Mm -hmm. And so, but I didn't have my own courage. It wasn't, it wasn't my courage yet. So that's what I would say to her, to the 30 or 40 year old, I guess I would say, don't create confidence falsely by pretending, you know, all the answers to all the questions. Listen more and see what other people's answers are. That was one of the things that I think about now with astonishment, how certain I was that I knew the answers, all of them. And I would tell it to you. You didn't even have to ask me. I would just tell you. But it was my way of creating a false confidence because there I was alone with two kids in New York trying to make a life for all of us. And so that certainty, that bravado, that false bravado was the strategy I came up with. And I think I would say to her, you don't have to do that. You could, yeah. yeah.
0: Certainly could have been viewed as a defense mechanism. of sorts, yeah,
2: Absolutely right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, very good. Well, we've been talking to, I've been talking to Sandra Butler, the author, of her latest book, uh, The Kitchen is Closed and Other Benefits of Being Old. Lots of wisdom just in the, in the hour we've been talking. There's been so much wisdom shared. And I imagine there's a lot more in that book. I hope so. I hope so too. Well, I imagine that book is available wherever books are sold.
2: That's right.
0: And yep. Sandra, do you have a, a website, social media people could? Uh, I, I, I My
2: you. social media is an 84 year old social media, but I do have a website, sandrabutler.net. And I have, I don't know, whatever my publicist told me, Goodreads, <laughs> author pages, I don't know, all that. You can find me on Facebook, but my website is probably where. All of my writing over all the years and all the books, plus this one is available to whoever is interested. And I hope there's a lot of you out there. Well, Very good. A lot of oldies. Yeah. (laughs) And
0: and some young people who will absolutely get some wisdom out of this. Uh, Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Well,
0: I will put that website address in our show notes so people can just uh, look that up and tap on it or click on it very easily. Sandra, this has been a very insightful, interesting and fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been me
2: too, Mike. Thank you.